0: You're Missing Out is sponsored by Audible. As part of my New Year's resolution, I told myself I'd read more and listen to new audiobooks. With Audible, it's easier than ever to find titles and time in my routine to reach my goal. Every month, members get one credit to pick any title, plus two Audible originals from a monthly selection, as well as access to daily news digests from the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and the Washington Post. Right now, you can visit audibletrial.com slash YMO podcast and get two audiobooks on behalf of the show. You can download thousands of different titles and listen offline, anytime, anywhere. Download the free Audible app on your favorite smartphone and tablet devices without ever losing your spot. Having a hard time deciding what to listen to? No worries. You can keep your credits for up to a year and use them to binge on a whole series if you'd like. This is the best way to find a new title to fall in love with, all while supporting your favorite National Film Registry podcast. Once again, that's audibletrial.com slash YMO podcast to start your free trial and get two free audiobooks on us. Thank you for your support. And now, on with the show. All right, gentlemen. What's your favorite use of one movie within another? I thought about this for a bit. Uh,
1: Part of me, you know, leans toward, like, uh, you know, some of the obvious ones, like uh, The Sorrow and the Pity and Annie Hall as a gag. But the truth is, my favorite, hands down, is um, in uh, Jean-Luc Godard's *Vivre Civi, which is uh, an incredible film um at one point anna karina's character goes to the cinema to see the passion of joan of arc now the scene is not quite as you remember it i remember in my mind i kind of remember it as cutting back and forth between that incredible close-up of joan of arc's face with the tear and the close-up of anna karina's face watching it and what that says about what she's feeling in fact ultimately it only cuts to Karina twice in that scene or so. Instead, you're watching a whole big chunk of of Passion of Joan of Arc play out to the point where you're kind of thinking, is this some kind of, like when they show Attack of the Crab Monsters in shopping mall just to pad out the runtime. But then it cuts back to Karina at just the right time so that cutting to her fits with the rhythm of the editing of the film. Uh, That the way it cuts from the guards to Joan of Arc in that same rhythm It then cuts to Karina watching it. And it's the closest you can feel to conveying an audience member getting lost in a film without going full Purple Rose of Cairo, Sherlock Jr. walk into the screen. Uh, The way that it cuts to Karina and the way it frames her face the same as as Joan of Arc, it it conveys her becoming one with the film and a part of it. And I think that's such an incredible thing to convey so my favorite use of one film another is passion Joan of arc in godard's fever seville if folks haven't seen it i believe it's on hbo max at least as we record this
2: my pick uh once i got this question sent to me was uh kind of came to me pretty quick and um it is the use of halloween at the end of scream when all of the characters are watching their movies and then the big bloodbath happens and the tv's still on as the movie's ending and ev- all the twists and turns are coming and you've just got the the, the John Carpenter scores just playing in the background. Uh-huh. There's moments where like that movie uh, turns in on Scream. Like, you know, you got Jamie Kennedy is watching the movie and he's, you know, he, you know, there's a camera on him. He doesn't realize watching him watch the movie and he doesn't know the killers behind him. And he's saying, "Jamie, behind you. He's behind you, Jamie. Just that. Just again, this that brilliant way of connecting this meta movie that's all about slashers and how people watch slashers and all that stuff, and just connecting the thread and putting it all, uh, just putting a nice bow on top of that little meta package. Uh, it's a pretty deft use of uh, of of all that, of editing it into the movie and making it all work." And how the movie climaxes as Halloween's climax. It's just, uh, you know, the best. And uh, I, I think, uh, yeah, I mean, I think that's my favorite use of a movie within another movie. It's pretty, pretty ingenious. Uh, to, 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 to be honest.
1: Every year since 1989, the Library of Congress has selected 25 films to add to the National Film Registry. The criteria? The films must be culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. Each week on You're Missing Out, we take a look at one of these
2: films to try and get to the heart of why they were selected and why they still matter. This
0: week, the other half of podcast like it's 1999 returns with his tap shoes. Kenny Nybart is back to discuss 1935's Top Hat.
1: Our guest today, in addition to being the co-host of Podcast like It's Nineteen Ninety Nine, is the co-executive producer of Step Up on Stars. Here to talk about Top Hat is Kenny Nybart. Kenny, thank you so much for joining us.
2: Always a pleasure having Kenny back. It's been so long. God, it's only been like about a week since I last talked to you. <laughs> That's true. Well, so it's also
1: it's also worth noting. You know, technically, in one sense, this is Kenny's second appearance on our show. In another sense. He will have innumerable appearances because Kenny has the distinction of being uh, one of the vocalists on our uh, theme song.
3: Thank you guys for doing that. That was the moment when I felt like I really made it as a podcaster. <laughs> so
2: we're here to get everyone that breaks.
3: I, I I look. You wonder how fucking proud I was of that. I sh- I played it for my wife.
1: <laughs> uh, really? i
3: have like I'm like listen to how smart I sound. <laughs> I sound so smart uh so you know you put you put a good score behind it you have these great images and then you have my voice saying i don't like that doesn't sound like something i would say but i just you know i say a lot of stuff i just talk and talk and talk so uh thank you guys uh that was that really made my day um and i you know i really needed yeah and (laughs) what you're
1: saying in, in that segment uh it's it it rhymes and it's over a beat so that our theme song is technically your rap debut am i am i correct
3: Nope, you're not correct. Definitely not my rap debut. Just, just another single I've dropped.
2: Oh, Kenny we'll is currently living under the stadium with Kanye. Yeah. <laughs> if Kanye is uh, Lon Chaney, uh, Phil is uh, Claude Rains.
3: So if you if you guys want to get problematic right away. I'm always down. Oh God. That wasn't that problematic. But I was in a band in college and I was the singer. And as a singer in a band, in a, in a bar band, in this was in the early 2000s uh we had a pretty eclectic set list so we would do things like uh we would do a lot of stuff you would do at a bar we do pearl jam and we would do jam bands and we would do whatever but we would do devil came down to georgia which is you know largely spoken and we also did lose yourself so there isn't there is somewhere in the world on the internet me rapping "Lose Yourself." Um, well, so that would be my debut.
1: Well, surely, and some and some Rage covers. I think you talked about your band on mm-hmm. the on the Rage Against the Machine episode.
3: That's true. We did. We also did. We also did Killing the Name of. That's right. Yeah. So I. Those are the three rap tracks I have. Killing the name of. Uh, Killing the name of. Killing the name of. Devil went down to Georgia and lose yourself. You can find them uh, anywhere you can stream shit from uh, 2004.
2: It's a hell of a <laughs> trilogy, there
1: <though>. Yeah. <laughs> And, and from, from your musical past, uh, you're here to talk about a musical. That's about as good a transition as I possibly right. pull from that That's one. Right. That's right. Um, like
3: the guy with the Segway went over the bridge.
1: Went over the cliff. When I sent you the list of films to talk about, I uh, wasn't sure what you were going to pick. And then uh, you, you picked out Top Hat in part because of uh, your own experience as a, uh, as a writer on uh, Step Up on Stars.
3: Yes. I, uh, I'm a dance writer. There are very few of us. Um, so I thought, yeah, I think you and I, Mike, we just kind of thought that it might be right for me being a dance writer to write about one of, you know, it's, it's not necessarily one of the early dance pictures, obviously dance, a visual thing that, you know, you don't even need talking for has been around since the beginning of the, you know, the medium, but it's one of the earliest ones that made the registry. And I thought, yeah, I thought that was something I could potentially bring um, my perspective to. Uh, Now that I've watched the movie, I I can't, I have nothing for you guys. (laughs) So it's, it's.
1: (laughs) Oh boy. I, so this, so you had not seen Top Hat before is what you're saying? No, you know what? I I've not seen
3: most of these. So so the, the Astaire Rogers ones are RKO um musicals. I've seen a lot of MGM stuff. Yeah. Right? So Astaire did some MGM stuff after his RKO deal was over. I think that was in the like early 40s or whatever. And uh so I really had never seen a Astaire Rogers film. I've seen the performance Right, I've seen cheek, to cheek. I've seen um, day and night, which I think is amazing. And uh, I think that you know, I, I think that what's cool about Astaire and, and Rogers in particular is Jim Rogers. I think like she really like it. The the saying about how she did everything Fred Astaire did backwards and in heels um, has become almost meaningless now, but she's really you know she's really what i think your eye is drawn to in in these movies or at least for me so yeah i i look i love this stuff i really love the busby berkeley
1: stuff um this is different
3: and we can talk about that
1: well that's yeah we're gonna get into that because this this ends up being kind of a a fulcrum point for the for dance on film and and the, the film musical Um, But before we get into all that, let's talk about why the registry picked Top Hat. The fourth pairing of Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers, and the first with a screenplay written specifically for them, Top Hat is the quintessential Astaire Rogers musical, complete with a contrived story of mistaken identity, romance, dapper outfits, art deco sets, plenty of dazzling dance numbers, and an array of wonderful songs, including perhaps the most famous Astaire Rogers duet, Cheek to Cheek. This effervescent musical proved the perfect tonic for Depression-era audiences, even if it was merely a reworking of the dance team's earlier, The Gay Divorcee. So that's what the registry had to say about Top Hat*. So, Kenny, this was your first time watching Top Hat*. Tom, this was sort of your ti- first time watching Top Hat*, right? I mean, you, you watched it in prep for the show, but you watched it first what, about a month ago, something like that?
2: Yeah, no, I watched it about a month ago because my plan was, you know, I plan and the world laughs at me. Uh, was to try to watch everything early and then have a second viewing before we recorded. But uh, yeah, so I I did manage to get this one in about a month ago. This was my first uh, just Fred Astaire, Ginger Ginger Rogers movie in general. Musicals and the like, uh, as we've said uh, before on the um, Singing in the Rain episode, big blind spot for me, personally. Uh, As I'm watching them, yeah, I'm getting more into them and uh, I'm excited to get more into them as this show goes on and just, uh, in general, uh, because I think I bought a shit ton at that last Warner Archive sale, just like, oh, we're not doing the sale anymore, so I'm like, all right, I spent $800 on on (laughs) Blu-rays, so I'm pretty sure there's at least a a musical or two in there, but, um, yeah, but uh, as I'm finding out, watching it the first time, not my first uh, time dealing with Top Hat content in general, uh, as we'll get into. I'm sure.
1: <laughs> yeah, let me for, for those who for those listening who don't know, or maybe you don't have one in your town, or maybe you did and it's gone now. Uh, the Alamo Draft House always plays a little "Don't talk, don't make any noise" thing prior to the film, but one of the clips they use to tell you not to talk is they use the the opening scene of Top Hat with all the gentlemen sitting in the stuffy London club uh not making any noise and then concluding with a stare doing the big tap dance in the doorway to to piss them all off the so. big fuck you tap which, dance which listen yes.
2: which I'm all for tell every stuffy uh british man you find to go fuck themselves with a tap But time. then then again with the tap dance or you know just a- as creatively as you can you know we all got our own uh, uh unique talents <laughs> uh but then again it is it is counterbalanced on my end with them just taking Italians out back and
1: putting one behind their ear. <laughs> oh well, you mean
2: you? Are
1: either of you gentlemen aware of the fact that this movie was banned in Italy?
2: Yeah, and I don't. I don't blame them. One time, you know, <laughs> broken clocks were right twice a day. Bene- uh, Mussolini was right banning this movie. Oh my
3: god!
2: <laughs> so wait, so him, you
3: think this? Do you think this movie sucks?
2: No, I don't think it sucks. I'm just joking because it really does make Italians look like the biggest fucking dopes in the world. <laughs> well, that's
1: that's always. That's always funny. This and the gay divorcee, with the same actor playing the same type of Italian role, were both banned in Italy uh, for what they felt was a derogatory portrait of Italians. Fair. I always find that funny because I find kind of... Now, the modern-day Italian stereotypes are all... Like, it's all mob stuff. It's all Soprano stuff, right? It's all stereotypical Italian-American, you know, macho, overly macho. I always laugh anytime you see this, like, earlier sort of of turn-of-the-century idea of the Italians as this sort of effete, uh, you know. Fops. uh, I believe, yeah, yes. Uh, One of my favorites is, um, I don't know if you know this, Kenny, um, I had a friend of mine French and told me that in France, Pepe Le Pew isn't French. Oh, no. He's Italian. No, I didn't know that. Because apparently she was saying that the whole uh, amorous creep uh, stereotype that we all apply to the French uh, because of Chevalier and all that, they apply to the Italians. That's interesting. But so this is a, this is a pivotal when we were talking about. And Tom hinted at, uh, having seen parts of the film before, one of the key things about this movie, and I think part of what aids its longevity, uh, is obviously there were 10 uh, Astaire Rogers pairings, uh, mm-hmm. most of which were in the 30s. You get one in 49, the Berkeleys of Broadway, which is the only MGM one. Uh, the rest are-, are So many AM. goddamn sequels. <laughs> well, it is, it's an interesting thing. Hollywood and their goddamn sequels. <laughs> um it is an interesting thing to me insofar as uh so there were 10 of these films this is the one that if people know one they probably know most of these because a lot of elements from this film particularly cheek to cheek and uh top hat and tails get repeated or explicitly shown in other films you know it's a obviously a pivotal piece of the green mile Wow, I just completely blanked on the other film I was thinking of. It, 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 cheek to cheek is shown in, an, oh, uh, Purple Rose of Cairo uh, also shows up in that. So this is kind of, if you haven't seen Anastair Rogers' film, you've seen parts of it, most likely pieces of Top Hat.
2: I mean, you know, the movie is one of those movies that got its hooks into filmmakers that grew up watching it because, I mean whatever we can say about woody allen and i'm sure there's many things that could be said from all three of us in different tones and uh you know areas uh the guy was a fuck. the guy was a movie fan you
3: can't deny that
2: yeah you can't deny woody Woody allen was a movie guy he, he grew up with movies loved movies um and you know same with darabont you know darabont i mean clearly you watch his movies i mean the movie that kind of put him in movie jail the first time was the majestic a movie about the movies and then you know shawshank redemption is you know taken from a book a short story called rita hayworth and the shawshank redemption so movies are a big part of that uh green mile like we said has this uh sequence in it where um michael clark duncan gets to watch it as a sort of a, a a gift for being um you know magic uh, yeah, then the majestic, and uh, the last thing he did was uh, Mob City, which has a lot of Hollywood stuff in it. I mean, you know, this is the you you see why when you see, I mean, Fre- uh, Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers dancing, why it would get its hooks into young up and coming filmmakers, and
1: and obviously, um, uh, the Boss Baby, uh, also we should note,
2: yes, obviously you animation watching uh,
1: Academy Award nominee, the Boss Baby, and the English Patient, <laughs> and some others. Um, one thing that I think is interesting about this, uh, and it's funny because uh, I guess we'll we'll touch on this now. Kenny, you mentioned Busby Berkeley. One thing I think is very interesting is that this film and the astaire Rogers films in general and the ones that follow, um, because arguably this is kind of the first I mean, it's the first script written for the two of them. It's also worth noting that their career up until this point they're not really the stars of these movies. So the first pairing of Astaire's Rogers is Flying Down to Rio, which is not their movie at all. They are a a very secondary part of it. You know, Astaire is the best guy pal and and Rogers is the best gal. And they're the, you know, they're the secondary characters in the rom-com, right? It's mostly about this this pilot trying to woo this foreign woman, but they're very funny and they click when dancing. People, uh, you know, uh dig what they're doing and then you have the gay divorcee which is based on a, a play
0: that mm-hmm.
1: that had done so they put the two of them in that and yes they're front-loaded in that but it wasn't written for the two of them and it's it's fine um but it repeats a lot of the same cast that shows up in this uh edward everett harton who plays the best friend in this was in that uh the actor who played the butler was in or the valet was in gay divorcee as well the actor who plays the Italian was in gay divorcee as well and then their third outing, Roberta, is another case of, it's mainly a showcase for Irene Dunn. People might know from The Awful Truth, playing an opera singer. Again, Astaire and Rogers are kind of secondary, off to the side. One of the things that's interesting is, is that this film, I think, in a you know, amongst others, but this film really kind of pivots what people went to a musical movie for. Yeah. Because you look at those Busby Berkeley films from earlier, and... People admire them, and uh, I think that they're great. And, you know, if you were a kid in the 80s and 90s and you rode the great movie ride in Disney World, you saw the big Busby Berkeley setup. you know, the bathing beauties, you know, those images. But nobody, you know, people are not uh, the popular consciousness. were not saying, golly, I got to see Footlight Parade again. You know, you could take those musical num- numbers, those elaborate Busby Berkeley set pieces chop them up and put them in that's entertainment or other montage films and people were just as satisfied top hat really sort of strips that down it's a lot more controlled it's a lot more i'm not going to sit down and pretend like the plot is a game changer by any means but there is an effort to instead of just doing you watch those films a lot of those ones Busby Berkeley worked on you know, the plot is so bare bones, it's just to string together, oh, let's put on a show and musical numbers. Here, there is an attempt to kind of craft a, a romantic farce amongst these numbers. And I think most importantly, Astaire was very forceful in this film about the idea of, uh, he reportedly said when it came to the camera work on this film, uh, either the camera dances or I dance, and I'm going to dance. Mm-hmm. So instead of doing like Berkeley did, which was a lot of quick cutting, where sure, it looks impressive if you're sitting down, but you're not really showing anybody's dance skills if you cut from a close-up of a foot kicking to a close-up of a hand to a you know all this stuff, and you watch the dances in this film, and other than the one number that Esther hated, which is the Piccolino, all of them are essentially just wide shots, basic coverage, and letting you see the dancers do what they're doing. And letting the choreography of Astaire and his co-choreographer, Hermes Pan, actually tell a story with the dancing itself.
2: Yeah, that was kind of the thing I noticed, like, I kind of latched onto watching this for the first time, was um, how not like kind of loudly a musical it is. It feels kind of stripped down, and there's really like not that many big musical dancing numbers mm-hmm. like you've got the big moment that's that's you know used in um uh the green mile but like other than that it's it's very much about the the comic mi- mi- uh, misidentity adventures that's going on with these two and um i also I, I i did find it interesting that uh like the musical we did last year um Singing in the rain, it really it it really found itself a hook to allow the musical and dance elements of the movie feel natural to what's happening instead of feeling like it comes out of left field. Like there's a difference between this and um uh, singing in the rain as compared to say a West Side Story where there's no reason for these Latin gang members to be dancing and singing, but here Fred Astaire is a song and dance man so we have these numbers of him doing his job and then you you the big moment it's it, it, you're kind of already set into place that this guy literally just cannot stop dancing that's how he expresses himself so when he's with ginger rogers yeah he's he's going to dance he's going to he's going to do his whole romancing with with his feet you know uh, i found that interesting how like you were saying, it strips it down from the Bubsy... Bubsy ugh, the Bubsley, Burksley stuff. And really kind of makes it... Uh, I guess I would say easier to latch onto for audiences. So you take my dad to see it. He's like, I don't want to see fucking dancing, you know, dancing, whatever. You can at least have all this comedy and stuff well, to latch on to.
1: Yeah, I think that that's... I mean, Stare was very big on the idea of... He talked about flow a lot, right? And how you wanted one scene and one moment to flow into the other. That's why he didn't like those kind of choppy dance numbers. And he didn't like, for him, choreography is supposed to transition from one movement to another, right? One sequence to another. So he didn't like things like you see in Piccolino, which is where you go from like, oh, we've got a sideways shot, you know, or we've got a, we've got a a wide shot uh, of all these people dancing past us because it looks impressive. And then we're going to cut to an overhead shot of them dancing in a different position because it looks impressive everything had to flow and that's true of the plot lines as well by the time we get to top hat him and the director mark sandrich and hermes pan had a literal chart a literal graph that they had made up that broke this down into a science of exactly at what minute uh the astaire and rogers characters should meet at what minute minute they break apart uh, how long between each musical number you should have dialogue. They had worked it out to a system because Stair was so much on the idea of, like, there's a, there's a rhythm to this. It all has to be rhythmic and it all has to flow. Otherwise, doing these musical numbers is going to be jarring. Or having a dance breakout here is going to be jarring. So he was very much about trying to treat this, instead of just a musical showcase, actually have a flow going.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that's the thing a lot of musicals, at least mo- movie musicals, don't really kind of latch onto is that everything around the musical and dance numbers should also have a musicality and a rhythm to it too. So even when you're not singing and dancing, there is this energy propulsing you through the next scene. I mean, that's what uh, you know. I think is so great about last year's movie, Singing in the Rain. I mean that that's a movie that's just straight up like a shot from a bullet. The movie the minute that movie starts because even, like, again, that's a movie where there's not as much singing and dancing as you would think there was in an iconic, you know, 80 years later loved movie musical, but, you know, it opens with this montage of him growing up and stuff, and, you know, you got that stuff here, it moves, there's a rhythm in the the dialogue and the way all that stuff works, and, you know, it's 1935, it was gonna take somebody who was good at, The dancing, like Fred Astaire, to be like, "Hey, listen, let's show how good I am at dancing, and let's get these fucking cameras moving instead of cutting it to to garbage." And yeah, you see why it's you know it's it's inducted into the goddamn registry because somebody had to move the needle and move the idea of how we could film not just you know movie musicals but movies in general. I mean, cameras are going to start moving more and more as the age as the years go on because. Somebody had to figure it out. I, I well, think
3: yeah. I think these are really really good points and I think the point where this is to me essentially a, you know, like um it's like a slingshot you know kind of linging the idea of a mus- movie musical forward. What I think is there are almost two trajectories here. One is this a musical which I think is the seed that births things like, you know, Singing in the rain and everything we're talking about, all the you know Broadway musicals that become uh, movies, uh, everything you know up to now with La La Land. Then the Busby Berkeley stuff, I think, is the stuff that births uh, special effects. And I think that dance is kind of the original special effect, um, which I think is true in this in this yes. movie as well, right? It's but the term I use on Step Up is dance magicians that i think what we have that no other show has is we have these people who are basically capable of performing magic and we should be putting that front and center as much as possible and everything should be serving that idea of how do we get these characters into positions where they can knock our fucking socks off with what they can do and that's just not that not just the Physicality of it, that the emotionality of it, that is the ability to tell stories, dance. That's our choreographers, that's our directors, and that's everybody who can do these things. At the, you know, it's the, it's the like the Rick Baker theory, which is like, yeah, you know, a a movie that uses Rick Baker is not going to win Best Picture probably, but he could win for Werewolf in London, right? Yeah. So it's we can, we can do what we do better than anyone can do what they do. And I think that's the Astera thing, right? Astera and Rogers can do what they do. Better than anybody else, and I think his thing is get out of the way and let me do it. Put a story around it that anybody could latch on to. This is a story that's been told you know a hundred million times every fucking third movie in the thirties had this exact same plot line. but get you know get us to the get us to the ball get us to the the part of the movie when uh you can be kind of wowed by this you know it's
2: it's like you it's you you put it as ma- they're magicians and that's that's 100% correct. They're physical magicians, and as any magician knows, like Fred Astaire knows, it's how you visualize and show the audience the trick, because if you're, like, one angle off, like, one degree off on the angle, the magic trick is broken. Same in movies. If you're over-editing it, you're breaking... The, the, the magic trick because now people are subconsciously thinking, well, they're not actually doing this, they're cutting around totally. it to make it look like they're doing it totally. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it's you know, we we, we dealt with this shit what, uh, like 15 years ago when, um, Rob Marshall was, you know, taking every Broadway musical and filming them and just executing them in front of our eyes because he just didn't know how to shoot dance sequences. And, you know, now people, um, were kind of jumping for joy uh what 2 months ago when in the heights came out cuz it was like oh my god they're showing you these fucking people dancing yeah i mean the same thing happened with step up in the movies same thing is happening with step up on television get the fuck out of the way and let these people who are more physically impressive than we will ever be if we had a thousand years to train and just but I, I, I,
1: th- I think on top of that, there's one other element to what Astaire and Rogers do that separates them from Fusby Berkeley, and I think becomes an important thing for dance going forward, which is not just what they're doing is physically impressive. You know, uh, it, honestly, it's the same thing as when you're talking about an action film or a film with a car chase or something like that, which is you can't just show, uh, you know, uh, you can't just have a fight scene in a movie that's just a, you know, the equivalent of a UFC fight where there's nothing before and nothing after, and you're just watching people punch. You know, a car chase is not impressive if you're just watching the cars drive. The thing that makes their dance scenes work is if you watch a Busby Berkeley number, for the most part, whether it's Footlight Parade or, or uh, Gold Diggers 1935 or anything like that, it's just numbers. It's just numbers, and the dance has to do with what's being said in the song, where in the money, whatever. With this, what's so important is, you know... Or as as cookie cutter as the plot can be at times, and as farcical as it can be at times, you need that tension because it's it's so important that the dance numbers themselves tell a story. Isn't this a lovely night to get yes. caught in the rain? On its own, if that was just a segment on So You Think You Can Dance, you'd go, "Yeah, I mean, I guess they danced well. That's very good." But it's the fact that it does through the uh, the sequential imitation. Uh, stuff which is like the bits where he'll do a little jump and then she'll do the same jump and it's that little like kids sticking their tongue out at each other copying each other stuff you get to watch them fall in love and isn't this a lovely day to get caught in the rain you watch her forgive him in cheek to cheek and that's a testament not just to the way that it's choreographed and their physicality but it's also a testament to ginger rogers as an actress and how she with her face, while doing these complex moves, with her face is able to sell the shift in emotion.
2: Well, it's, I mean, because I, I said this in the Singing in the Rain episode, I, I you know, the thing that always hold, hold, held me up with movie musicals, at least the ones I saw before I started getting uh, a little more uh, 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 branching out in my taste, is that so many of them don't justify the the song and dance numbers where, you yeah, you look at this and it's moving the story along. It's not just showing off just to show off. Otherwise, what we'll, you know, what are we doing? We're just I mean, it's, yeah, it's, it's great and all, but yeah,
3: it's, it's it's elevated. I mean, this is this this is fairly, you know, one on one stuff, right? It's it's of course the the goal should be to have everything work in concert. To have the dance inform the story, the story inform the dance, the story to be told through dance, that kind of stuff. And I totally agree and, and I think I I, I think singing in the rain it does about the best job possible of that um so yeah i i yeah i i think and i think that helps audiences kind of get comfortable with the idea on top of that i i i also think that and i think you do too tom i'm not saying you know but i think there's certainly a place for the west side story of it where you you just oh, yeah. accept this world
2: yeah me saying that wasn't so much a a, a criticism of that kind of movie i'm just saying it, it there there are you know there are the two different kinds like this this is a very different kind of musical that's kind of grounding its premise into something that audiences can more easily latch on to where yeah that, i mean there's nothing wrong with a west side story that's going to just straight up say, like, fucking get on the train or you're going to be lost. You're going to get trampled under the, the wheels. But, th- th- I mean, that's the thing we'll find as we keep going with this shit is just, I mean, just being a film fan in general, there's a hundred ways you could do anything. Right. And, I mean, Fred Astaire here is kind of uh, breaking free and setting the path of another way for the movie musical.
1: Well, I mean, and, and to bring up singing in the Rain again, I mean, that's kind of, when you talk about the dancers in film, right? And you talk about particularly yes. male dancers. Your two titans are Fred Astaire and Gene Kelly. There's not an argument; those are the yes, two indeed. big ones. But they're two very different dancers. As a kid, I was a Gene Kelly fan because Gene Kelly was much more of a modern dancer, right? You watch, uh, you know, you watch that sequence that he um <laughs> he crams into singing in the rain, <laughs> the full modern dance, you know, uh, the the essentially end? ballet. Well, it's the it's the it's the fanfare thing.
3: Yeah, I know what you're talking about. But...
1: Yeah, when he when he shows up and and the only way they justify it is he goes and goes wait I had an idea for another number in the movie and then they just do it for ten minutes.
3: Totally and worth. It it. Never matters. <laughs> it's totally it's worth.
1: I love it <laughs> and and that's yeah. no, I love it and I love American in Paris. I loved that as a kid. Whereas Astaire was was known for being a much more um, you know, a much more polished dancer, and also the fact that for the most part. He treated the dance numbers in the films kind of the way that he would treat his dance numbers in vaudeville. His his origins are in, in vaudeville. He used to perform with his sister, Adele. Uh, and in fact, in their stage days, Adele was the more popular of the two. And then he transitioned to film. But, but he was to perform with Adele. And, and if you look at his numbers in these films, they could be staged without any trouble. The camera does move. And I appreciate the camera work in them. But they're... Vaudeville performances, whereas you could not do *An American in Paris* on a stage. I mean, I know they did technically do it on Broadway, but I mean those numbers require so I, the ca- camera and dolly. Yeah, I'm very
3: into, into *Top Hat*. I'm very into to Fred Astaire. I think it's very much of its time because I think, and I think you guys do too. But I, I, I think what I keep coming back to when it comes to to musicals and why I love musicals so much, why I love dance so much in film, and why I love the you know the everything from the Busby Berkeleys to uh, in the heights and everything that kind of you know came in between is because when it comes down to it for me, um I'm a maximalist, yeah, and I want the most and I don't always want the most, right like of course, I can appreciate a small movie, but small movies for the most part, are never gonna be the ones that stick with me i mean there's a reason why I'm always riding for Moulin Rouge, and it's part of it is because it's the most it's it is it is a 15 course meal that i think fits together perfectly in an almost impossible way and that's why i you know i love singing in the rain and i love that fanfare at the end about the balletic thing at the end because it's all worth it to me to show kind of like every tool in your toolbox to me you know the Astaire Rogers musicals are great and thrilling and their dancing is uh you know Unparalleled, but um, the 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 getting there is very rocky and hard for me to kind of wrap my head around. I I go into these things ready to to suspend my disbelief, and I don't need to be terrestrial in this stuff. So that's
2: yeah. I mean, the very idea of a movie musical is a maximalist idea, right. and with movies, it's you're already dealing with the unreality. So why not completely lean into the unreality? And you know, I get that. Uh, I think, you know, at the end of the day, I'm going to always ride for uh, Singing in the Rain over this because that one is a bigger, more lavish uh, affair that's really just kind of blasting you in the face with a 12-gauge round of nonsense. (laughs) And also just um, with my, you know, brief flirtations with uh, Gene Kelly and Fred Astaire, I'm going to lean with uh, Gene Kelly, uh, not just for the physicality of Gene Kelly, but also because... He looks like he's the kind of guy who could beat somebody up at a bar, and Fred Astaire looks like he's getting shoved into lockers. So, I'm always going to ride for Gene Kelly in that regard. The guy who looks like if James Conn and Seth MacFarlane had a baby. Here's, here's
1: what I'll say: I think the Top Hat, to me, one of the things that makes Top Hat impressive uh, over some of the other films is that by having that musical number at the end, uh, the the pic- well, not the end, the Piccolino, uh, the kind of forced big. Uh, Berkeley-esque number, I think that, for me, that makes me appreciate their more pared-down, one-on-one dance numbers a lot more, because I think, you know, it- it's easy enough to look at Fred and, and Ginger dancing to Cheek to Cheek, and have that temptation to go, well, but what if there were 50 people doing it? But then you watch that Piccolino sequence in the end, and it, it feels so lifeless, and I think that part of what's important about fred and ginger and why it is fred and ginger why it is a stare and rogers uh when we talk about this is the fact that it is the extraordinary chemistry that they have and that i would argue that particularly in a thing like cheek to cheek or even you know just a stare and his backup dancers and top hat and tails i think that there is an energy that even though it's two people in cheek to cheek the two of them have the energy of a fifty-person musical number in Gold Diggers in nineteen thirty-three. I mean, and it's not just because Astaire was such a a precise choreographer, and he was very conscious about how his body would look while he was dancing. But to the credit of Ginger Rogers, um, now, you know, people always talk about like Kenny said the the backwards and heels thing, but there's more to it than that because Ginger Rogers was also uh selecting her own costumes with an idea toward. How will this dress move when we're doing the dances? How will this be visually impressive? And I'm assuming, I don't know how much you guys looked into it. Do you guys know about the the infamous cheek-to-cheek dress? I don't.
2: Uh, no, I do not. Enlighten us. Uh,
1: Astaire hated that dress vehemently. So Rogers designed this dress. This You know, the cheek-to-cheek number is her in this big feather-covered dress, right? Great dress and... The stair was wrong. Well, that's the thing. A hated it. Director Mark Sandrich hated it, but if I may quote Ginger here, and I'm, I'm pulling from um, uh, one of the books I picked up. I'll cite it later. I was determined to wear this dress come hell or high water, and why not? It moved beautifully. Obviously, no one in the cast or crew was willing to take sides, particularly not my side. This was all right with me. I'd had to stand alone before. At least my mother was there to support me in the confrontation with the entire front office, plus Fred Astaire and Mark Sandrich. Now, it's worth noting, Astaire did not see the dress for the first time until the day of the shoot hated it and his big problem with it was that when they moved some of the feathers came off and he didn't like that these feathers were flying around it screwed up a lot of things for him later they watched it back and he realized that made the sequence better and as an apology Astaire and his choreography partner Hermes Pan bought Rogers a gold feather charm for her charm bracelet but my favorite is that Later, during a different, uh, I think it was during the rap or something like that, Astaire leaned over to her and sang uh, and s- sang cheek to cheek with new lyrics that said "Feathers, I hate feathers, <laughs> and I hate them so that I can hardly speak." So, and it, later, his nickname for her became "Feathers." It was a point of like a lot of tension for them. This this dress, but what I think is so important is that Fred was wrong. That. Even though he envisioned this choreography one way, Ginger was able to look at it and see what dress that needed. She was very conscious for costumes and how they would look on screen, which I think is something she doesn't get enough credit for when we talk about it. A couple, uh, couple
3: things. You have a better voice than Fred Astaire. Um, no question. Uh, I think that I read somewhere else, too, and I think this is true. Um, Tom brought up what a, uh, what a geek. Fred astaire looks like. uh and i think somewhat famously he did his test at i think it was mgm and they said he can't sing can't act balding can dance a little And i think astaire said no it was just that they said i can't act and i also dance um and i'm going bald uh and you know he's no gene kelly physically like, he's just like, hey, that's, that's obvious. You know, He's no he doesn't have yeah. Gene Kelly's face. He doesn't have Gene Kelly's muscles. He doesn't have Gene Kelly's presence. And what what I read, I don't know where, but uh, I think it might have been Pauline Kelly said it. Or maybe Jen Maslin. Um, that Ginger is the one who made Fred Astaire a sex symbol.
1: Well, because... that's, it's Catherine Hepburn has that quote.
3: I think that's a different quote. But, I, but okay. I, I, there is a quote Catherine Hepburn had, too, but maybe it was. It was the idea that, that it's the way that Ginger looks at Fred that makes women swoon, make, makes women want to be <laughs> yes. him. So maybe it was Catherine Hepburn. You're right.
1: Um, Hepburn, Hepburn was the one who said, Fred gave Ginger class, Ginger gave Fred sex.
3: Okay, so, that, so, so
1: that's, a, that's a
3: variation on the same theme. I think it was yeah. Maslin or Kale who basically said, you know, Ginger doesn't get enough credit for making women making women want to be in that position, making it feel like being you know, uh, chased after and being with Fred Astaire, being dancing with Fred Astaire is the most wonderful thing in the entire world. Uh, and we see, you know, we see this all the time in Hollywood with with unusual, atypical male sex symbols. But I don't think we give enough credit to the co stars who sell the idea that this 140 pound geek is the world's most attractive man, which I think she does really well.
2: Well, it's the, it's the you know, people never give the straight man the uh, credit where credit's due. I mean, uh, you know, having gone through all the Abbott and Costello stuff, I mean, Costello isn't as great without Abbott giving him that straight man reactions and slapping him right in the face. You need, you need Ginger Rogers to sell the fact that his, I mean, he looks like his own caricature. He does. You know, he looks like his own Looney Tune. And he looks like
3: he should. He looks like he was an Al Hirschfeld, and he should be on the the wall of the Palm.
2: I mean, he absolutely has the face for a vaudeville <laughs> a, a performer. But yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, Ginger you know Rogers. It the... is, you know, listen. We... Without them, she's 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 the she's the glue that's holding it all together. You know, I mean, it, it, it kind of goes without saying. And uh, you know, watching this movie, I mean, there's two things that really make this movie, I think, easy to watch. And it's it's those two, Ginger and Fred. Obviously, they've got the chemistry. They've got the the moves. It's all great. Uh, the other thing that made me uh, enjoy watching this movie is almost none of the other performers were doing anything for me except for Helen Broderick as Madge, the woman <laughs> awesome. who is completely like, oh, my husband's Amazing. my husband's trying to fuck you. Eh, what else is new? <laughs> it's like,
3: <laughs> well, at least he's getting some exercise.
2: That's
1: yeah. That's what makes the fun. The absolute. I mean. Because the thing I do still laugh at this movie. Um, you know, even though Yeah, it's the, got good bits. The she was The, shoe I think is the best bit is just, you know, you do these mistaken identity things all the time, right? But just the idea yes. that it's 1935, a very buttoned up time. And you have this scene where Ginger Rogers when they right before cheek to cheek, where they're at dinner, Fred Astaire shows up, and Ginger Rogers is like, "Oh, well now his wife's going to give him the business." And she just goes, "Well, I'm oh, you two have met. Him. Well, I'm glad. You two go have fun." And <laughs> ginger rogers has to i mean like people forget, we love cheek to cheek it's an incredible number it's used in so many movies and i feel like a lot of people don't realize when they see it in other films that it's not just that she's falling in love with him it's that for argument's sake she's falling in love with him in spite of the fact that he's essentially a married man inviting her to join a polycule in in his mind or in her mind yeah. you know that that she's it, she's got this weird thing to overcome i mean this movie is pretty uh you know
2: pretty ballsy oh, yeah. with with that kind of with that kind of content i mean the there was one bit that kind of knocked me for a loop with with me going holy shit this is 1935 which is the scene where uh uh fred Astaire and edward everett horton are like they're gonna go to uh you know the, the they get in the hotel room where they go to what is it italy they yeah. go to venice yeah and the oh we got the uh the bridal suite yeah the, uh, the honeymoon suite the bridal suite and it's, and then but then there's the part where it's like oh we got to take you out of the bridal suite and he just looks at Ed whatever and is like oh is that okay with you sweetie and like gives him a, like a little yeah. like, goes a, Mwah. and it's like Jesus whoa whoa what 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 are these depression era nut jobs thinking about watching this shit
1: There's my favorite joke that I didn't pick up on when I was young toward the end when Astaire, uh goes into the the suite the you know the the bridal suite right where the Italian is. And uh somebody go you know, they go, Oh, you can't be in here, it isn't cricket, and uh Astaire goes, It isn't tiddlywinks either. And I realized like watching it, listening to the commentary, that that's a joke in part because Tiddlywinks sounds like you're referring to genitals. Like it sounds like tits, it sounds. it sounds a little raunchy. <laughs> and it's just so fun anytime you watch one of these old films and realize, oh, they were sneaking stuff in. They were getting it in there. Yeah. You
3: know? <laughs> this is this is pre code though, right?
1: the motion picture code yeah i don't 35 cool. when was the code? now i got it now i gotta installed. check it. no so pre-code that's 1929 uh 1930
3: yeah, i should say 1920- yeah, right 1930 yeah. so
1: all right well there you go so
3: so that it this this is yeah. all right so i you know i've gone to this rant on my um my podcast which is essentially in modern times uh al- the need for allegory is uh moot more or less um and anybody who's using allegory at this point is just doing it to show um I don't mean that you know as a, as a one hundred percent blanket generalization, but uh it's not the same it's not the same when uh you literally couldn't say things um and you had to dance around things and dance around ideas and inceptor trojan horse ideas and I think that stuff is interesting to me the idea, like so much of our idea our notion of like the sexless thirties, the sexless fifties, you know, and, and what a quote unquote like revolution it was for for people to watch Mad Men, uh, which, you know, I think Mad Men's an amazing show, but not because they showed characters having
1: oh, sex. That's what, um, okay.
3: comes from was that?
1: Oh, I, I was gonna say, no, that's not revolutionary. Half of Peter Bogdanovich's career is just making movies going, Did you know people did it in old times? Yeah, okay, great. Good right. On. Right, 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 exactly. Um and our, our
3: the the reason Peter Bogdanovich can say that to people is because of the yeah. code, right so it is always fun to see to to catch these little things uh like almost like pull these little things out um in you know these these little <laughs> little winks to yeah we 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 were fucking too
1: I think that that's so crucial to this film too not just because of the, you know, the, the bodiness, but one of the things that we've lost in modern day, because like you're saying, Kenny, we don't have to imply anything anymore. You know, in film school, one of the things they teach you early on, when they, at least in our film school, like we weren't allowed to use sound for the first like two years. Uh, and the idea was to teach us the idea of show, don't tell. Uh, and to express sure. things visually. I think to that same degree, older audiences were better at drawing the implication from things Older audiences were better at even stuff that, you know, we may now call, uh, on the nose, but like drawing the implication from little inflections and, and little cues, you know, uh, the, the, uh, the joke in it, uh, the great joke in it happened one night, uh, when Gable and, and, um, and Claudette Colbert put the, the blanket up between them, call it the wall of Jericho. And then, uh, at the end, when they decide they're going to fuck, they, uh, <laughs> they play a trumpet, you know, yeah. to tumble Like that kind of stuff is great. Um, I think that we've modern audiences have lost the ability to 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 some degree or another because everything is shown and everything is literal to some degree. Oh yeah, lost the ability to follow certain visual things and not just the, the tricks. But I think about when musicals come out now, how many people call numbers superfluous that absolutely aren't because they're just not seeing what they're doing. A, a number that gets copied uh, almost verbatim is, you know, isn't it a lovely day to get caught in the rain, which uh, is my favorite number in the movie. It doesn't take much imagination to realize that isn't it a lovely day to get caught in the rain in decades gets translated to what a waste of a lovely night in La La Land, right? It's the same number. Mm-hmm. It's it's them doing the, the imitation step. But I just remember that like, when I saw La La Land, the person I saw La La Land with, I was like, that number was wonderful. I had so much fun with it. And they were like, I just, like, why did you have to sing it? You could have just said that in, like, three words. I'm like, yeah, you could have. But well, that first no, was no fun. Is, <laughs> <laughs> but the point is, like, you know, with Isn't It a Lovely Day, like, you watch it, and yeah, you could just turn your brain off and go, oh, they're singing and dancing, whatever. But if you're watching that sequence, it's telling you the story. And so I kind of wanted to ask uh, Kenny, when it comes to you know, if if we can pivot a little bit to what you do and on your show as a writer, of what is the you know because dancing in a dance number you know is is a way of telling a story uh you know and, and just as much as dialogue conveying emotions. What's the process like for you uh, as a writer to kind of determine sort of when when a dance number comes in and how you convey that information like when when. When is something best told with words and when is something best told with movement is what I think. It's a good question. So to pull back a
3: little bit, uh, our show takes place within what's essentially, you know, this is not technically what it is, but it's essentially a uh, finishing school slash academy for young people who are trying to be uh, in media. Right. And we focus on the dance component of that. And so so we have a lot of these, I would guess, I guess I can kind of call it almost like bear with me, almost like diegetic dancing. Right. Where people are practicing, where people are performing on stage, where people are, you know, auditioning. Um, And we tell stories through that, of course, you know, you're telling stories of rivalries, you're telling stories of competition, you're telling stories of of confidence or whatever it is. Then we also have some of these flights of fancy type dancing, where two characters will dance um, in an apartment, or they'll dance at a train station, or they'll dance on the sidewalk, or they'll dance wherever it is. And it and it, it we it's never it's never like Gene Kelly at the end of Singing in the Rain, where it's in characters' minds. It's always happening in real life, but it's stuff that you you know if you saw it in real life, you would stop and say, "What in the world is happening?" Whereas in our show. Sometimes background people will just join in, right? And uh, so in terms of when do we decide when a story is best told through uh, dance and through, you know, dialogue or action or whatever, it mostly comes down to, frankly, uh, the characters and how they would express themselves. Um, and for the most part, if something can be expressed through dance, we do it, Right. So if you have two characters who are in love or who are falling out of love, um, and there's an opportunity to get them dancing, and tell the story that way, we we will always kind of default to that. But we also have like a pretty heavy crime element in our show, and we would never uh, marry those two worlds. Right? Like the idea of drug dealers dancing in the middle of a drug deal is just it would kill the reality of
1: the show. It worked great for cop rock. But, you know, well, you know, it worked great for like West Side Story,
3: right? Like there is there are ways to to do this stuff. Yes, for sure. And but West
2: Side Story is kind of whittling down the reality of street gangs. So you're not really getting into the nitty gritty of, well, how are these guys making? Oh, they're drug dealers and they're pimps and they, you know, they killed women to steal their, (laughs) their 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 purses. It's like okay, they, so they're a street gang, and what do they do? They dance. Okay, yeah, that's about now, as far as the reality now, goes. Now, Kenny, let
1: me ask on this note: What is, if I may, we've already talked about your background with singing, but with regard to working on this show, you know, and if not, Nor do you have any background in dance yourself, or or is that something that you kind of had to learn while doing? This?
3: Virtually none, right? Like virtually none. Um, I have. Found look, I come from Entourage. Uh so when there are things or shows movies that are in and around they're set in and around media entertainment, um, that's kind of when I can go in and meet on them, right? And Step In was Step Up was was one of these shows, you know, which ultimately, you know, the we were kind of centered, as I said, around a school or or an academy but our you know our main character is Neo and he's kind of playing a version of himself but with a lot of Kanye. So there is this bigger thing going on, right? There's this bigger thing. So in terms of me, you know, look, I didn't know much. I don't I wasn't brought in in any way to, you know, speak to the dance of it um and I kind of learned on the fly. You know, we in terms of how the dance gets from the writer's room to the final product, we lean a lot on our choreographer, Jamaica craft, who is, you know, just a incredible Atlanta based, um, hip hop dancer and choreographer. And a lot of it is done in Atlanta where we shoot after the script's written, um, with the writer of that script and the producers and Jamaica, and also often the dancers. I mean, she has a team of four choreographers. So whoever, is choreograph who whoever is uh, choreographing that particular episode will be involved. But yeah, I I don't ha- I I don't have almost I, I none basically is the answer before I did this. Now I've been doing this for a while.
1: Now I bring this up just because I was reading about how Astaire notably uh, obviously they would get the script and with this script in particular, uh, Astaire hated it. Uh, he first and foremost felt it was it was patterned too closely to the Gay divorcee and felt that he was cast as an objectionable young man with no charm or sympathy or humor, and just ripped it apart. But one of the key things is not only did he get involved in, in trying to get that story better, but he spent six weeks with his partner, Hermes Pan, choreographing before he would even allow the director on set. Right? He had that much control. That got me thinking about, because you talked about handing it over to the choreographer, what is the feeling like for you as a as a writer of these kind of things? Because obviously you know when when you're writing something else when you're writing something that is just a straight a dialogue based story like an entourage or or uh or what have you you know when you're writing something like that you're obviously taking a character entirely from point a to point b with your writing what does it feel like to kind of what what's the process like to sort of hand off a scene and and entrust to somebody else the idea of hey this i i'm leaving there's this space here where this character has to get from point a to point b and and you kind of have to tell that story in movement how does that work for you how do you feel when when that happens
3: it's a great question um and and one that fortunately i don't i this is this is going to sound like bullshit but it's true i don't think about that much because like i have just all the faith in the world in jamaica and so does our our whole staff like they it, it, i've never seen her or her team get a piece which is essentially you know in the script we write the dialogue and the action up until the dance and then we have a block of a basically a paragraph of this is what we are trying to accomplish in this scene in this dance right over the course of this dance we want these things to happen some of them are physical like you know a drops b and some of them are emotional like you know a has to feel like she's not as good as me, right? That kind of stuff. And uh, we hand it over and they take that paragraph and turn it into a, you know, two or three minute piece. And it's always better than we imagined. So if we were in a situation where we couldn't trust our choreographer, it would be different and bad and very uncomfortable. Like, and I've worked, you know, we've all, Every writer's worked with directors that you don't really trust. And it would be similar to that. That you just kind of have to accept the process. Your part of the process ends once shooting begins. Which is true. That's that's DGA stuff. Like you, I don't know if you guys know this on set. Writers are not even allowed to talk. You have to have all you send all your communication through the director. Um, and when they're dancing, you have to send all the communication through the choreographer. But we're, we're very lucky. Like she really, really elevates the show um, when it comes to that stuff.
1: All right, so let me ask because this is a question I've been meaning to ask. What is everyone? Everyone, what is your favorite number in this movie? In this movie, in Top Hat, yes. Your favorite of all the the numbers of all the songs and dances in this film. What what what's your favorite?
3: Mine is the same as yours. Uh, what, isn't it? A, isn't, isn't it a lovely it, day to get caught the in the rain? rain one, the yeah. one, the one. Yeah, the one of yes. the gazebo. I love that one. and I think that's great.
2: Listen, I'm a basic bitch. It's uh I'm in heaven. Cheek to cheek. Like, I mean I don't yeah. know what to, you know yeah, you know, I, I don't know what to tell you. I'm a I'm a I'm a basic bitch, I'm a simple boy, living in a lonely world. Uh you know. Uh now
1: Tom, would it change your mind to know uh that would it change your mind to know that your boy Buster Keaton did do a parody of a different dance number from uh from Top Hat in one of his films?
2: I mean, it wouldn't change things, but it would certainly interest me. He did.
1: This is this is in uh, the because Top Hat was a huge hit. This is an important thing to note. Top Hat was a massive, massive hit. Uh, Let me see. I have the number written down here. Um, didn't even have an HBO Max release. Look at that. In the midst of the Great Depression, Top Hat was produced on a budget of six hundred nine thousand dollars, which is a little, uh, which was over twelve million dollars today. It grossed three point two million dollars. Or 63461 and so on, dollars today. Uh, adjusted for inflation, that's the biggest hit the pair ever has. So it was a massive hit. It's a good return. The very next year, uh, Buster Keaton. Do you remember the, the first number in the movie, No Strings, which is a stair tap dancing and he wakes up Ginger? Right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, in Buster Keaton's film, Grand Slam Opera, which is a talkie film, 36. Uh, he does the same thing, except the gag is that he's in this run-down, working-class apartment as opposed to this fancy hotel. So when he is dancing around, instead of being able to leap on the bed and bounce right off, the bed collapses. Shit's just breaking all over the place. And then when the girl comes up and he decides he's going to be romantic and do the the tap dance, instead of a stair taking a handful of sand out of the ashtray and spreading it and doing an Elliot dance, uh, Buster Keaton grabs the fire bucket full of full of sand dumps it out and there's a half lit cigar sit or a half smoked cigar sitting in there it's it's a fun it's a fun (laughs) gag but yeah my my favorite is uh lovely night i mean i do love no strings uh because i do think there's something very part of the problem with a lot of these farce films from the 30s is that you essentially have two people meet lock eyes and they're in love with each other and they want to get married right what i think is so great about the first meeting of Fred and Ginger in this during that no string sequence is that she's not she doesn't meet him and immediately go like, I found the man I'm going to marry. It's she thinks he's cute. She thinks he's he's being kind of dick. She thinks he's cute and he thinks she's cute. And she goes downstairs and then he starts doing the the very charming kind of tap on the sand. And it's like,
3: I love that. You too. can
1: tell she's swooning a little bit. She's not going to marry him immediately. But there is this feeling that's a little more natural to like, you know, Kenny, you talked about how he's not a traditionally good looking man and how Ginger sells that. I think part of that is that, you know, it'd be different if he walked onto the scene and she was immediately like, oh, my God, you know, to bring it back to Singing Rain again. When Don Lockwood shows up, he's so gorgeous. He expects every woman to be falling over themselves for him. Whereas it's in this film, she falls for him because he's so charming. That even when she thinks he's a married man, uh, you know, and his wife is chill with it, uh, cheek to cheek wins her over because he is just so, gosh darn charming,
2: you know. Yeah, I- it's it's funny. I feel like this is where I dis i, I, I split from the the crowd because I just think he was an absolute fucking asshole the entire movie. <laughs> um,
1: yeah. I'm not, listen. I'm
2: I, I, listen. It, he, I don't know. That's just me. I thought he was kind well, of a I dick. Mean- I trust that
1: if you watch their next film, Tom, follow that fleet where his companion is a monkey in a sailor suit. I I feel like you'll be more on board for that.
2: Well, listen, listen, Every Which Way But (laughs) Loose But With Dancing is is fine in in my... It's funny, though. I literally, after I watched this movie, I think about a few days later, I watched the, the Hitchcock movie, The Lady Vanishes. And it has, like, essentially the same inciting, like, romantic incident as this, where... What the fuck is his name? I forget. Uh, but the main guy in that is uh, is a musician and he's playing his music too goddamn loud, waking her, the main female lead up, bothering each other. And then, you know, away we go, which, you know, hey, there's only like seven ideas in cinema. So what are you going to do?
1: I, I also want to take a moment because we talked about, uh, you know, uh, I mean, it's worth asking for the audience's sake, because uh, I asked Kenny your background in dance. Tom, what is your background in dance?
2: I get drunk and go to mosh pits. Yeah, I felt
1: like I just, I just wanted, <laughs> I wanted everybody's bases covered. Now, for me, I will admit this. Uh, I, I did tap for a number of years when I was younger, um, because I was doing all the musicals in school, and I idolized Gene Kelly, so I took tap dancing classes. And I will tell you right now, um, watching some of the things uh, Fred Astaire does in, uh, particularly the No Strings number, and also uh, White, uh, top hat and tails, uh, my ankles literally hurt. You know how some people like who used to be like athletes in high school, like when they watch football on TV and somebody gets hit, they feel it. Yeah. I truly felt it in my ankles at points at some of the things he has, that some of the things that he does and makes it look so effortless, you know, I mean, there is this, you know, it's kind of like we were talking about, uh, I mean, this will be out later, but one of the things we talked about with uh, recently with the Olympics and everything going on is a lot of people talking about gymnastics and how we don't appreciate how difficult that is because how fucking dangerous yeah, how dangerous is. and how difficult it is because, they make it look so easy, right? And they have to make it look effortless. And so much of that is true for dance, especially tap. I mean, I, you know, the the one thing you see Fred Astaire do a lot where he basically sweeps his, for argument's sake, sweeps his right leg in front of his left and then leaps over it. Leaps over his ankle. I mean, that mm-hmm. you do that at the wrong angle. You've broken your ankle just easily. It is such a ridiculously you know, it's such a damaging thing to do and and to see that he does it so lighter than air. I mean, think about that that, uh, Top Hat and Tails number, right? Which is the only, arguably the only number in the movie that is kind of a, this is just a number that's happening. Uh, That's not super story-based. It's still, you know, an incredible number. I loved, uh, you know, his, obviously him using the cane and tapping his heels to make it look like he's shooting everyone on stage. Yeah, Uh, which actually came from an old 30s routine that he had done uh, on stage uh, with a different number. Uh, I believe it was, he was in a show called Smile. And uh, the number, I believe, that he had done that in, most of the same choreography, was called You, Young Man of Manhattan, I think. I don't know why I remember that without reading it, but it's there. Uh, And when he went, because he was friends with Irving Berlin, one of America's greatest songwriters uh, who did the songs to the film, when he went to Irving Berlin, he was like, I want a song to do this number two. And Irving Berlin just happened to have white tie, top hat, and Tails" sitting around. I was like, ah, try this. And sure enough, because of this film, it went on to be a massive hit. Uh, that's another thing worth noting. Every All five songs from this movie were hits when they came out. They were topping the charts. Uh, and have had a, a legacy. I mean, Cheek to Cheek was voted the number 15 greatest movie song of all time by the AFI, which is the highest ranked of any of Stare's, uh Stare and Rodgers' songs. Uh, it's had this this rich legacy that I think is fascinating and yet did not win the Oscar. Just pointing that out. Cheek to cheek, lost, which baffles me. Did any, <laughs> to, I, That's my transition to, did anybody else have anything to say before we transition into how, how Top Hat fared at the Oscars?
2: Uh, I think I'm about tapped out. How did it
1: do with the Oscars? Top Hat was nominated for Best Picture alongside Alice Adams, Broadway Melody of 1936, Captain Blood, David Copperfield, The Informer, The Lives of a Bengal Lancer, Midsummer Night's Dream, Les Miserables, Naughty Marietta, Ruggles of Red Gap, and the winner, Mutiny on the Bounty. Uh, I want to point out that The Informer, Naughty Marietta, and Ruggles of Red Gap are also all in the National Film Registry, so we'll be covering those fellow nominees at some point. Uh, it was... Was, was Mutiny year one? Mutiny on the Bounty is not in the registry yet. Come on. right i had the exact same thought yeah that's insane um it was nominated for best original song for cheek to cheek but it lost to lullaby of broadway from gold diggers of 1935 it was nominated for best art direction but lost what that that that's a song that has persevered as well it has not saying that it's cheek to cheek but no i i will get into i will get into my thoughts on on how that win happened uh but uh best art it was nominated for best art direction lost to the dark angel And it was nominated for Best Dance Direction, but lost to both the Broadway Melody of 1936 and *Folie Bergere du Paris, the latter of which is a Maurice Chevalier musical. Uh, It's worth noting this is also the year of The Bride of Frankenstein, which got a nomination for Best Picture. Yes, I was just going to say, the Best Movie of the Year, not even fucking (laughs) nominated for Best Picture. Here's a little Oscar trivia for y'all. This also appears to be the year that inspires the idea of Best Supporting Actor and Best Supporting Actress. Uh, every uh, The Academy Awards, up until the 8th Academy Awards, had only actor and actress. As a result, uh, from Mutiny on the Bounty, Clark Gable, Charles Lawton, and Franchot Tone all get nominated for Best Actor, but presumably cancel each other out and Victor McLaughlin wins Best Actor for The Informer. S- the very next year at the 9th Academy Awards, suddenly there's a Supporting Actor and Supporting Actress category. I have to imagine this was uh, a factor in that uh also worth noting this was a banner year for charles lawton he's in mutiny on the bounty les miserables and ruggles of red gap so
2: good for you also hey how about this give a little uh, shout out to uh paul mooney for black fury the yes. in candidate winning is a in second on the final ballots it was not an official nomination paul mooney coming in and telling everyone <laughs> from mutiny on the bounty to go fuck
1: themselves extra trivia do you know who else came into the eighth academy awards and told everyone to go fuck themselves can't wait to hear uh Technically, Norman Maine, because the 8th Academy Awards uh, is the fictionalized award show that Vicki Lester wins Best Actress at in the 1937 Star is Born, and a drunk Norman Lester shows up and starts making a scene. So oh. the Top Hat Oscars, the 1935 Oscars, is the Oscars that Vicki Lester supposedly wins Best Actress at. Of course, at this Oscars, uh, that honor went to Betty Davis but the crucial element here i think is cheek to cheek losing to lullaby of broadway uh i i have a theory as to why that won kenny you mentioned that that song has also endured what are your thoughts on lullaby of broadway it's a song i'm aware of tom do you know (laughs) lullaby of broadway (laughs) i don't even know the words you're
2: saying to me right now it's like (sighs) come on along and listen to
1: the lullaby Lullaby of broadway Broadway.
2: why are you all yelling at me right now (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> we are Kenny, singing at you. Kenny and I are planning a, a duet show soon. That's what's going to happen. Um, we're going off to tour the country doing old standards. Uh, you and Phil will talk about movies from 1999 to cover. Um, that's the plan, oh, right? Phil can would I, not can I be happy that? with that. <laughs> Tom, what are your thoughts on The Girl on the Bridge? I don't know, fine. Don't All right, see so you guys next week. <laughs> um, okay, but my thing is, one thing that people forget about the Best Original Song category is that at least now, and I'm sure it was at the time too, you don't judge just based on an isolated song, right? It's not an MP3. You're watching the scene in the movie. Uh, Lullaby of Broadway, which appears in Gold Diggers 1935 and the same year, also appeared in Betty Davis's Special Agent and James Cagney's The G-Men. So it's in three different movies. You were hearing it all the time. And it is an elaborate Busby Berkeley number in gold Diggers 1935 it is a lavish number so i think it's one of those things where if you are looking at scenes especially these scenes isolated lullaby of broadway is a knockout showstopper and cheek to cheek without this the film around it might just seem like yeah it's some nice dancing whatever uh and i think that might have hurt its chances there's also an element of the year prior uh the gay divorcee which is an astaire rogers film won best original song for the continental they might have been trying to spread the wealth uh but for my money i think that was a very good theory mike i think you're probably right Yeah, for my money cheek to cheek is the is the better song and the better that's just but i'm so glad we got the chance to talk about this i think that you know the astaire rogers thing is such a an enduring iconography uh also worth noting for anybody who wondered yes ginger rogers did win an oscar just a couple years later mm-hmm. uh for a movie called kitty foil and fred astaire would get nominated for showing up in Towering Inferno. His only nomination. Yep, he just kind of shows up, and I don't know. Those '70s disaster movies are weird. Uh, Towering Inferno not in the registry. Shocker. Um, those are the ones I hey, always. We'll, we'll I'm be a, a little, little surprised. surprised. I or are, are any of the are any of those in the registry? No.
3: Nope. No. No. All right. Maybe That's I. Many. We I got could... a job to do
1: i could see airport poseidon i was gonna say i could see poseidon adventure maybe one day getting it um towering inferno
3: towering inferno was nominated for best picture it was were the any of the others was airport Airport was
1: airport 77 i think gets or or 70 whatever it was the sequel what was it airport whatever the sequel gets one sequels yeah there's a lot um but Tower Inferno was the one that uh, I think that's in the same year as Chinatown and The Godfather Part Two.
3: I was going to say, it's a really great year, those, except for <laughs> Tower well, Inferno. I,
1: I, not to get too off track, but those disaster movies are the thing I always point to whenever you see people on Twitter who think they know movies, but don't always go like, man, I wish we could go back to the 70s. That was the best time for movies. And it's like, yeah, oh, there were a lot of great movies coming out. Look at the box office. You're going to see things you don't. You're going to look at that and go, the fuck was Gus the field goal kicking mule i don't know but it was the eighth highest grossing film of the year <laughs> <laughs> hey listen you say that name i'm intrigued
3: all right
2: actually it's
1: yeah. it it's on disney plus it's don Knotts and uh and uh oh, yeah. let's reboot it reboot it's reboot it's it. It, it's just the most ins- it's it's don Knotts' football team is struggling so he wants a better kicker does um, he get an italian no he gets here's the best part he gets a mule because he finds out that in uh, i forget what country i think it's peru or something there's a mule that kicks soccer balls really well. And he goes, could we translate that to football? And Listen, that's the movie. the rule that says a mule can't kick it's, field goals. No, it's a reverse Ted Lasso. We love it. It's great. Um, but right. yeah, Real fast, Mike. Yeah. Yeah. Sure, sure, sure.
3: Do you know the other two movies nominated that year? It was 74. It was are... 74. So,
1: so it's, hang on. So it's, it's towering Inferno. It's Lenny. It's Chinatown. It's Godfather part two. And son of a bitch. Is it the. No, it's not the conversation, is it? No.
3: Is, it is it, the conversation? It's the conversation.
1: Okay, yeah. There we go.
3: Yeah. a year. <laughs> Lenny he's, was he's... nominated.
1: Lenny was nominated for Best, nom- Best Picture, my friend. That movie sucks. <laughs>
3: uh,
2: I <laughs> We'll like talk it about a lot. some other time. Anyway, yes.
1: Um, one thing I want to note. The, good, I'm sorry. Kenny, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Uh, I one last thing I want to note before we, we send you off, Kenny, and I uh, will spice him whatever. But. Uh, I'm so glad you were here for this. You know, Ginger, uh, Fred, and Ginger are so iconic. I recently watched, and if anybody has a chance to check it out, one of Federico Fellini's last films was an homage to Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers called Ginger and Fred, which was a criticism of uh, Berlusconi's TV networks in Italy at the time. And his last film with Marcello Mastroianni, his last film with his wife Giulietta messina and if people get a chance to check it out, there's an extraordinary number where Marcello and Messina are basically playing people in their 60s who used to impersonate Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers in Italy now having to do cheek to cheek again it's an extraordinary uh, thing and just kind of shows how this movie from 1935 could endure and be transmuted in so many ways that cheek to cheek could mean something 50 years later in a country an ocean away and if that doesn't say why this film deserves to be in the registry I, I don't know what that's uh so Kenny thank you so much for joining us we really appreciate it always a pleasure friend for sure guys love it love coming on this
3: podcast whenever you guys want me i'm here someone drops out let me know
1: (laughs) uh do you have anything you want to plug on your your way out
3: i don't know when this is dropping but start but uh step up might be on stars at that point if you have stars and if you have stars it's available on demand the show is good i promise it's like very good aside from the the dance magicians i uh i 100 would say it was not good if it wasn't
1: (laughs) Uh so thank you so much for that and folks can check out podcasts like it's 1999 wherever they get their podcasts uh and you guys have a Patreon feed uh you are as of now going through the films of 1989 right Mhm Mhm Tom and I have had a privilege of being on uh both feeds Tom uh Tom's 89 film is oh you were Tango and Cash right? Tango and Cash Tom did Tango and Cash I did Honey I Shrunk the Kids uh, it shouldn't surprise anybody No and we'd love um, to have you all back for the uh, the slasher trilogy. Oh, yeah. I'm, which I'm pushing, gonna... I'm
2: pushing big for
1: the slasher trilogy. I know
2: Phil won't watch all the movies before those entries, but I, you, you said you would, and I can't wait to just dive deep into the those nonsense films.
3: When I, yes, when all of the things that I'm pitching uh, don't get bought, <laughs> and then I have nothing to do, uh, I will 100% spend a week just, uh, just bathing. In the world of Freddy, Jason, and Michael.
1: So, Kenny, okay, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, we really appreciate it. Everybody stick around. We'll be back with our picks for the National Film Registry.
0: The National Film Registry isn't some fixed object frozen in time. It's always growing, adding new titles every year. These annual selections are made by the National Film Preservation Board, with members like Martin Scorsese, Alfred Woodard, and Leonard Malt and representatives from organizations like the Academy, the DGA, and the AFI coming together to debate and decide. But they don't just pull titles out of thin air. They pull from the public, people like you and us, who can submit their nominations for the registry in a form on the Library of Congress's website. What we do, at the end of each episode, is have Mike and Tom pick films not yet in the registry that they feel should be, inspired by that day's topic. At the end of each season, those films will be formally submitted to the National Film Registry for consideration, on behalf of your missing out. Here are today's picks.
2: Okay, so, uh, shocker upon shocker, I've got another wild card this week that I think actually fits, um, I'm not being a jerk. so as in our discussion of the episode uh, of Top Hat we were discussing about how it you know was a, it was like a fulcrum point it changed the way uh movie musicals could be um it was very visionary for its time you know all that, all that stuff it was a game changer and i was just thinking about uh you know the connections between uh the movie musical and the action movie and i was thinking about a filmmaker that for better or worse depending on where you fall on this line on this filmmaker uh changed action cinema uh in a very fundamental way and i look back at his first movie and how that shift was almost immediate nobody had seen anything like it and people were chasing it uh the second it came out and i think um it's kind of surprising actually not really but kind of surprising Uber American auteur Michael Bay is not in the industry, in the registry uh and and for that reason i I am putting bad boys in, not just for all of that, but also because it it too is a mistaken identity movie uh dancing around uh Martin Lawrence pretending to be Will Smith and Will Smith pretending to be Martin Lawrence because of the hot white woman in the middle of the movie that um is kind of the focal point of the plot. And uh, for, 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 for its fun way of taking the uh, mistaken identity uh, a, a aspect, almost romantic aspect of Top Hat, uh, taking the action, uh, uh, game-changing elements of Bad Boys, uh, I am formally submitting Bad Boys 1995's Michael Bay uh, explosion onto the scene into the National Film Registry.
1: I can't. You made the case. There's no argument. You made the case. Uh, <laughs> listen, I, listen. Sometimes I do my homework. Sometimes I do my homework. Sometimes. So uh, my pick goes in in the opposite direction, and uh, by that I mean 100 years in the opposite direction from Tom's pick. Tom, your film was from 1995, correct? That is indeed correct, sir. How about we talk about 1895? So, as we talked about in our episode, the dance film. Uh, the idea of a dance film has existed for almost as long as we've had movies because dance does not require, it's a visual art form. Uh, That got me thinking about the earliest, earliest dance films. Uh, You know, and then certain things you do kind of, uh, you know, there were a lot of silent shorts and snippets that had dance, but the one that I think everybody knows and has seen reused a thousand times is not in the registry, which is Annabelle's Serpentine Dance. It's from 1895. It was produced and distributed by the Edison Manufacturing Company. Uh, it was dancer Annabelle Moore. She would wear this long, flowing skirt, long, flowing dress with butterfly wings, waving it around, wings in her hair, making this skirt flutter around like butterflies' wings. Or It was called a serpentine dance because of the, the movement. What's fascinating about Annabelle's serpentine dance, besides the fact that it is just this visually impressive thing with the the dress flowing in much the manner that Ginger Rogers understood how her feather dress would appear on screen. This is an understanding of how this movement would be captivating. It's also interesting because of course it was directed by William K.L. Dixon, early filmmakers before we had the idea of a director. But the most interesting thing about Annabelle Serpentine Dance is that most versions you see of it are in color in 1895, well before we had the idea of three short technicolor or anything like that, because these prints, when they would be distributed were all hand-tinted. So you can see a color short from 1895 because the Edison Company went the effort of hand-tinting them. Uh, So I think if we're going to talk about dance on film uh, and the history of of dance on film, while Top Hat is a pivotal piece of that, I think you have to go all the way back to 1895's Annabelle Serpentine dance. uh, Absolutely should be in the National Film registry. Let's all go to the
3: lobby, lobby, lobby.
0: Thank you again to Kenny Neibar. Next week, it's all aboard the quintessential action movie. Mike Scott from the Action for Everyone podcast joins us for The Great Train Robbery. Make sure to follow the show wherever you get your podcasts to stay up to date on future episodes. Follow the show on Twitter at YMO Podcast. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you again next time. Here on Your Missing Out. They honor movies of historical, cultural, or aesthetic importance.
1: the National Film Register.